the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning again. I don't know about you, but after uh, last week's message, I've been uh, spending this past week just walking around doing my daily life, even in my full-time ministry, and trying to make sure that I was performing and serving in a way that sought eternal reward rather than earthly reward. And I hope and pray that has been the case with you as well. We have been studying through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. And in our study of 1 Corinthians, we've come across two major themes. First is the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul spoke about this in length. The gospel is the wisdom of God. And all that it encompasses, not just the meat of the message, the foundation of the Christian life, but also the method by which we announce it, the method by which we deliver and proclaim this message, how Paul planted churches, how he evangelized both in, uh, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And so we saw the wisdom of God. The second major theme that we have seen, we came across just a couple weeks ago, and that was the building of God. The church, the local church, remember, uh, you have to be reminded, and as you read through this, that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a specific church, and so he's addressing that local church in Corinth as a whole, and of course, the lessons apply to all local churches throughout history and all over the world. So, the wisdom of God and the building of God, or the construction of God, which is the local church. There's nothing new about these two themes, that of the wisdom of God and building upon that wisdom. In fact, by way of example, those two themes actually intersect back in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24, by way of example, verses 3 and 4 say this, "...by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And you know that the Proverbs speak much of the wisdom of God and that being uh, the beginning of worship, uh, the, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom rather, and it talks about wisdom versus foolishness. And this proverb, of course, can apply both to a physical building as well as a spiritual one. But nonetheless, we see the two themes. Speaking of Proverbs and intersections, there's probably no better physical example of these two themes than the temple. The temple of God that God had the writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, build. King Solomon's temple was ordained by God Himself as the place where His people would worship, but also as the place where God's presence would be revealed so that His people could worship. You remember famous King David desired to build this house for the Lord, and he said, no, this is not for you. It is for your son, Solomon. And we see uh, the process of that building of that ancient temple, which no longer stands today, 
in 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, and 8. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians some 400 years later, but a second temple was built in its place, which we can read about in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. That temple lasted longer and was later known as the Temple of Herod, only because later on the Herod expanded in the construction of that building in the first century. But it too was destroyed in fulfillment of Christ's prophecy, as we saw in the Q&A a few weeks ago. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. There is no temple, physical temple, today. There is one wall remaining that is very famous. If you've ever visited Israel on vacation, you know that's one of the uh, top tourist destinations for Christians and is one of the top spiritual destinations for the Jews as you see people literally wailing there uh, as they hope for the rebuilding of the temple. But if the intersectionality of God's wisdom and building upon that foundation of God's wisdom is found most prominently in the temple, and the temple twice has been destroyed and has not been rebuilt the third time, how does God display His wisdom in that building? Well, He does so in what was the goal all along, even in the building of Solomon's temple. He does that in displaying his wisdom upon the, uh, in a building on the foundation of the gospel in what was the ultimate goal all along and will last until Christ comes again, and that is the temple, but not the physical temple, the spiritual temple, the church, all true churches. Unlike the previous two temples, the church is not a physical structure. It is a people, but no less holy and no less inhabited by God Himself, which is why we are referred to as Christians and as the local church as the temple of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we will see this very teaching. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 through 17. And if you are joining us, whether live this morning, or I shouldn't say live, in person this morning or uh, through the live stream, you know, uh, or you may not know, that we have been studying 1 Corinthians verse by verse, if not word by word. That is uh, what we do here at Grace Church of the Bay Area, simply Uh, because we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and if someone as important as God has spoken to us, and only through His Word, we better get it right. And what better way to get it right to go slowly and to dig deep word by word, especially when we're looking at a Bible that is translated from two ancient languages that are now dead. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 say this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This morning I want to give you four attributes of the church as the temple of God. Four attributes of the church as the temple of God. And what we see in these four attributes are not only wonderful truths that keep us as believers focused on God in praise and thanksgiving for what He has done in and through us, for us, 
But as we will see, these four attributes also serve as a warning. As a warning to those who would seek to tear down or harm the church. As a warning to those who are unbelievers that would come and spread false doctrine or even worldly wisdom. We could say that our proposition for the morning is four attributes of the building of God that serve as an encouragement to those who love Him and as a warning to those who don't. Well, let's move along and see the first attribute of the church as the temple of God. The first is that we are a sanctuary. We are a sanctuary. Look at the first part of verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Now, it doesn't say the temple. We are a temple because we know that this applies to all local churches in Paul's day and forevermore going forward in history. Though it is true that every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and Paul will say that later in 1 Corinthians, that's not what he's saying here. What he is speaking of here is the local church as a collective unit. So for us this morning, Grace Church of the Bay Area. Keep in mind that the church is made up of individual believers, and so both ideas work together. Now, there are two words in the Greek that are translated in the English as the word temple. One refers to the entirety of the temple grounds. Okay, so you know that the temple was very large. It was a very large structure. It was pretty amazing considering how they built it without modern machinery. So it's all of it, the courts and the structures, the entrance, the trees out front. That would be the temple. There's another word in the Greek that refers specifically to one room inside the temple, which was the holy place or the holy of holies. This was the inner sanctum where God would be, and it was restricted for any to enter except for the one person, the high priest, and even then he was only allowed to enter once a year, and that entrance would be preceded by many special washings and rituals. This room was also blocked by a veil or a curtain that kept others out to the degree that you couldn't even pass by and look in even accidentally. And there's a reason for this. Because God said that He would be present in the Holy of Holies and meet with the high priest once a year. And we know that the limitations of entering there along with the barrier of the veil was so that people wouldn't die. In seeing God. This was a reminder of how man was to reverently and carefully approach the awesomeness of God. Even when Moses was speaking with God up on the mountain, remember where he received the Ten Commandments, the law for God's people, the Jews? God said, I will show myself to you, but for your own safety. I will only show you my back as I pass by. And even then, because of that brief physical seeing of God's back, Moses' face shone to the point that it was bright in the light of day and visible in that way to the other Jews. 
Well, back to this word. The word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when speaking of the church as a temple of God is the word that refers specifically to the holy of holies. It speaks of the place where God was. Now, among the Corinthian believers that Paul is writing to, there were many who were not Jews. And so they may not be as familiar with what the Holy of Holies would be, what this inner sanctuary would be. But they would still be familiar with the temples of pagan gods and goddesses all over Corinth, many of which would still have this inner sanctum where only the great high priest or priestess of that false religion could enter. So, this word that, that Paul uses would carry great significance whether people were converted from Judaism or converted from paganism. Now, speaking of that temple, the actual temple, uh, the second temple that existed when Christ was on earth, you remember that upon the death of Christ, that veil was torn in two. And you, you read about that. The veil was torn in two. And you've got to keep in mind what an incredible, miraculous uh, thing this was to just kind of tear on its own. Now, of course, there are uh, atheists and there are people who don't believe uh, in Jesus as the Messiah, even Jews who have tried to explain away uh, why that veil would have torn, that maybe one of the, the rods holding it up fell and it tore. Uh, but historians and archaeologists have told us that the veil was so thick that to tear this thing would have been near impossible or very difficult by human hands. Why did it tear in two upon the death of Jesus Christ? Because God was telling us that any person could now access God directly because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And the principle, that principle, is now furthered by Paul in saying that not only can any believer come to God in the Holy of Holies, but any believer now is the Holy of Holies. That's a huge distinction. In other words, you don't need someone to approach the presence of God for you. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a small group leader. You don't need to do some sort of ritual. You don't need to pray some, some prayer. You, if you are a true Christian, don't even need to confess all your sins before you can approach God. In fact, it is the approaching of God directly is the only way that your sins can be forgiven and that you can confess them. But not only is God not saying that is necessary, that someone else is necessary to approach God directly in prayer or worship, He is saying God has approached you as it is in you. You are the Holy of Holies. He's not just saying the veil has removed so you can now all approach the Holy of Holies. You are the Holy of Holies. You are the sanctuary of God, which is that word temple. Now this word, when he says temple, that you are a temple of God, it suggests various manifestations of God and His relationship with man. So when you hear that you are the temple of God, you think of things like light, purity, presence, communication, worship, service. This emphasizes the fact that we as Christians are set apart for Him. This is not the veil has been torn in two and now all of mankind 
ever from that day forward is now the Holy of Holies. No, it is those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who are part of the universal church, the body of Christ, and of course thus is thus plugged into a local church, whatever and wherever that may be. Now the picture and understanding of what it means to be the temple of God is made full or fuller in the next attribute of the church as a temple of God. And number two is we have the Spirit. We have the Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit. Look at the second part of verse 16. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you not know that you are a holy temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, Naturally, these two truths go hand in hand. They're not distinct truths that don't work together. Uh, For the sake of this morning, I have taken a sentence and I have cracked it in half, but it is one full sentence, is one full continuous thought. This makes sense because you are the temple of God. And naturally, as the sanctuary of God, the Spirit of God dwells in us, the church. Whether or not you recognize it, this is a huge help. And what I mean by this is, is this, that we often know, because our theology is correct, that the Holy Spirit indwells us as individuals, but also as a church. But so what? That's wonderful, great, that's part of salvation. But what does that mean? Practically. It is a huge help. And a lot of the help, I would imagine, that the Holy Spirit does in your life because He resides in you are things that He does that you don't even recognize. A few days ago on Thursday in our men's group, we discussed the discipline of prayer. And in that discussion, we referred to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, which, is address, which addresses the Holy Spirit's helping believers with our prayers, even interceding for us. You can almost picture our prayers leaving our lips and going up to heaven. It's not actually how it works, but if you imagine it as a picture going up into heaven, the Holy Spirit takes control of it, and it says in that verse, because of our weaknesses, Because you don't know how to properly pray without selfish motives. Your worship of God in your prayer is stained with sin and selfishness. And He knows that you're just getting to, yes, 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 you're great, you're wonderful. By the way, gimme, gimme, gimme. And so the Holy Spirit helps us, and that's just one way, helps us in our weaknesses tells us what to pray, convicts us of what to pray, and then even takes our prayers and intercedes at the throne of God the Father on our behalf. And by the way, speaking of those who would say you need someone to intercede for you, a priest or a holy man or a guru or whatever it may be, you don't need another human being because we have the Holy Spirit. He does that for us. Maybe your thought is right, My words are wicked. I am a sinner. How can God the Father who is holy and separate listen to these words? And here's why, because the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. And you take that into just our lives in general outside of just the discipline of prayer, and this is what he's talking about. Yes, he helps us to know how to pray, what to pray for, intercedes on our behalf, but everything you do is empowered and helped by the Holy Spirit in a biblical way. Right? We want to be careful we don't take this too far and start attributing to the Holy Spirit things that God never says that He does. 
And in the same way, His indwelling of us as a church brings about His aid, His help in our worship. He controls it. He guides it. Which, by the way, even as a pastor, I would prefer over human control any day. This also goes back to the need to follow God's wisdom and God's methodology rather than the methodology of man or the world. Among the many avenues and means of worship that believers have at their disposal, the supremacy of the local church is very clear. The Bible doesn't tell you to be part of a local church. It is so clear that it assumes you are. Everything, everything in the New Testament revolves around the local church even commands to certain roles that may not play out in the church, such as slave and master or boss and employee, okay? Everything that we are told revolves around the local church. Not Christian parachurch organizations, not missionaries, not conferences, not even the individual believer distinct from the local church who's not plugged into one. It is from the local church that the New Testament assumes and instructs all service to flow. It is the center and zenith of all worship and service and Christian being. If you are joining us online and you have been a Christian for a while and you're jumping from church to church and you have never truly plugged into the local church and you say, I don't need one because I'm still serving, I would assert to you this morning that you are serving unbiblically because we are told that within the Christian service, you are to be under the authority of a local church with its pastors and elders. You are to have your service flow through the local church. No, you are not just to pray for people in your church, but it starts there. No, you are not just to serve people in your local church, but it starts there. It all starts with the local church. It is home base. It is the sending agency. It is where you go back to get refreshed, get more supplies, get more spending money, as it were. You always have to go back, and then you go out into the world and evangelize. And then you go out in the world and serve, but the core, the center, is the local church. Now, there's a danger in both ways. There are people who don't know anybody or serve anybody or pray for anybody or spend money anywhere else except the local church. That's wrong too. People outside your church need service. They need prayer. They need evangelism. But there are people who do the opposite. They don't serve or pray for or help anyone in the local church, possibly because they don't have a local church or because they somehow twist the Scripture so much that they think they are too godly for the local church, which is the opposite of godliness. Well, the structure, pastors, elders, deacons, and servants, and lay people, all within the context of the local church in the New Testament. In addition to that powerful and underlying theme throughout the New Testament, we have this golden nugget that the Holy Spirit dwells in the local church. And I think it is fitting that though, as I mentioned earlier, he will address the Holy Spirit in every believer, he starts here 
in addressing the major issues, which he knows is a heart issue. It flows out into a church issue, but it's a heart issue in the Corinthians. He starts with the local church. The local church is the holy of holies. Now, taking a step back, speaking of the context, let's look at what he's doing here in regards to the Corinthian church. Again, taken as a full sentence, verse 16 is a rhetorical question. Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The phrase, do you not know, is a literary device that Paul uses some ten times in this epistle alone. And it's a rhetorical question phrased in the negative. Do you not know? But the rhetorical question demands a positive answer. That's why it's rhetorical. He's not really answering or asking for an answer. He knows that they know the answer is a resounding yes. Do you not know? Yes, we know. Yes, we know. But there's more. The grammar that Paul uses here shows an accusatory tone. This is loving, yes, but it's not pleasant. Gracious, yes, but it's not friendly. This is an accusatory tone. It has an intensity to it. It's not like, hey, do you not know? It's surely you know this. Look at you. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. Fighting each other. Surely you know this, right? You know this. Come on, Corinthians. He is addressing an issue that should be fundamental to their thinking and should flow into and preventing the big sinful issue that he's addressing. And we know that perhaps in just practicality, this truth, at least the severity of it, has escaped their notice. Otherwise, they wouldn't be acting the way they are acting. Remember, they are fighting within the church, and they're using church leaders as the source of their fighting. It's pride. It's saying, I'm better than you because I'm going to say I'm aligned with Paul. Well, I swear my allegiance to Peter, and, and they just fight. And then the super holy ones, well, I am of Christ. But it's just another way to say, I'm better than you. And you remember that these factions, these teams, these groups, Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and especially Christ, they didn't want that. They didn't say, who's on my team? They didn't even fight each other in their ministry. Apollos didn't come and say, I know what Paul told you, but we're going to change everything. Don't like the color of the choir robes he, he picked. Don't like the seating arrangement. Don't like the sound system. Just going to change everything. No, they just picked up and focused on the gospel and teaching these people, and they were a team, same team. And so whether it's this sin or any other sin, he's saying, don't, don't you get it? Don't you know who you are? And to be sure, it is in response to their sinful behavior that Paul not only asks this question, but asks it in this way. You're fighting over who's better in the church based on your own man-made factions. What are you doing? Don't, don't you know that you are a temple of God? Don't you know that the Holy Spirit resides in you? Obviously, you're, you've forgotten if you're acting like this. Obviously, you're not aware of this. You're not thinking about these things that I and Apollos and others have taught you if you're doing this. In other words, because the temple of God indwelt by God doesn't do this kind of thing. 
doesn't act like this. Now, we understand that they're believers. He's not saying they're unbelievers. We can act contrary to how God wants us to. We know that. It's called sin. But he's saying this is not what you're supposed to this is not This is not befitting of the holy of holies. In other words, you are Christians. Don't act like this. Paul may just have easily asked, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know you're the Holy of Holies, indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Don't you, don't you know? Don't you remember? And if I were to ask you that, you wouldn't be like, oh yeah, thanks for, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, you, you would you would probably be a little offended because you would know I would be being a little sarcastic. I would be rebuking you. Hey, don't, oh, you did that? Don't you know you're a Christian? Of course you know you're a Christian. And, and that's the point. That's what Paul is doing here. And I think it's a good reminder that we can ask ourselves the same thing. Don't, don't you know who you are? Don't you know you are the holy holies indwelt by the Holy Spirit? You're, you're, you're clocking out at work. So simple now because you're on Zoom and then you just switch to look at inappropriate sinful things online. Don't you know that you are a temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit? You're constantly angry at your husband. You're giving your wife the silent treatment. Don't you know who you are? You're seeking the approval of man. You consider yourself better than others. You're judging the heart, condemning her behavior. Don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? We have the Spirit. And, and I think this would be, I mean, print it, write it, paste it on, the, on your computer. Put it to, uh, as a reminder on your rearview mirror, whatever it may be. Don't you know who you are? You're getting mad. Don't you know who you are? You're getting frustrated. Don't you know who you are? You're being unloving. Don't you know who you are? Anything we do, we need to be reminded, this is not, this is not who you are. I know better. You've done this. You, you, someone's done this to you. You've been in this scenario where you, 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 your, your, your godliness kicks in and rather than just slamming that kid or that person, you, you say... <laughs> I'm grieved that you did that, but I know that's not you. What, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Why did you punch that kid on the playground? Why, why, did, you, why did you take this? Why did you not pay for this? And this is, this is the same thing. The tone's different with Paul, but I'm talking about how you, we should ask ourselves, what are you doing? This is disappointing. This is not who you are. Are you going to lose your salvation? Of course not. Is God going to send down a lightning bolt? Of course not. Are you going to face His wrath? No. We talked about this last week. But this is not who you are. And this isn't like our, our hands are tied. I so want to do this, but temple of God, I have to do this. This is about worship. This is about joy. This is about living the way you're supposed to be living. You have the Spirit. I think... You know, some of us, when we were younger and we got saved and maybe we're slowly learning the Scriptures and someone brought this up, right? For those of you who are saved as a kid or went to church as a kid, wasn't that the scariest thing uh, when someone said, you know, God sees everything you do. 
what? Uh, what? Nothing, huh? You know, and all of a sudden you're thinking about all the lies and all the things you did in secret and whatever, you know, all that stuff. But then the years pass and it's just a doctrine. It's just a verse. It's just a theology and you sin. You start thinking of the best put-downs. You start logging into that improper site, all the while knowing that the Holy Spirit is in you. All the while knowing that though you may have forgotten your password, God remembers it. He knows everything. He's right there, and yet we still do it. And so you can see why Paul could be so forceful and say, Come on! You know this. Cut it out. Well, time's getting away from us. Let's move on. The third attribute of the church as a temple of God, we carry significance. We carry significance. You could also say we carry security, and you'll see what I mean by that in a second. Look at the beginning of verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's pretty powerful stuff. This shows us how important the church is to God. This shows how important we are to God. This is old school. Eye for an eye, lex talionis. He destroys my temple, I destroy him. Destroy in both uh, instances that Paul uses it here means to corrupt, to ruin, to spoil. The corruption of the church would be done by an unbeliever. How do we know it's an unbeliever? Because he says he will destroy him and he only destroys unbelievers. The person could be from outside the church or within the church. Wait a minute, you said it's an unbeliever. Sure. It's an unredeemed member uh, of the the church. Let me rephrase that because even the word member. uh, Unredeemed attender of the church. How many of you? Same thing, right? Going to church, I went to church whole life, and it wasn't until this conference and in college I realized that I wasn't saved, and I was a hypocrite, and I got saved. Well, you were an unbelieving member of that church since high school, since junior high, since you were four or whatever. That's what I'm talking about. Whether it's someone who knows they're an unbeliever and wants to come and cause problems, or someone who thinks they're saved, and everyone else thinks they're saved. It doesn't matter, but they're in the church. Or it could be someone from outside trying to come in and cause problems. And maybe they're not even trying to cause problems. Maybe they're trying to do good. Maybe they're saying, hey, you Christians, look, it's hard out there. I know you guys, you Christians are nice and whatever. And don't you know that as Christians you should do this? Don't you know that the world's going this way? Don't you know that our nation is going this way? As Christians you should do da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden there's worldly thinking going in. Right? So inside or out, doesn't matter. And although different, the connection to the physical holy of holies is helpful. Because anyone other than the high priest who entered the holy of holies dropped dead. Even the high priest, if he entered on the wrong day or improperly, dropped dead. Here's the thing. You've read the Old Testament. You know all these rules and regulations. There's all these things that perhaps you read and you go, they would be killed for that? They would be stoned for that? And so it was in the hands of the people, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the various tribes, to kill people who violated the law. Praise God that's not the case today. But in this particular case, 
misentrance into the Holy of Holies, the people would not have to kill him because God would do it himself. Immediately. Similarly, those who defile the church, those who infiltrate the church, those who hurt God's people will be destroyed by God. It is not our place to do that. I shared that with the kids this morning in the lesson. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours, especially in things like this. And we're not told what either of these destructions look like, someone who destroys the temple or someone who destroys uh, or how God would destroy that individual. Clearly, uh, within the church, there's some sort of connection to what Paul has been addressing, the arrogance and boasting that the Corinthians are practicing. This is clearly not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of man, the type of things that divide the body of Christ. Because again, we're talking about the local church. Maybe it's bringing in lies and deception that convince the church to pursue the ways and the wisdom of the world. This is bad. This is how a church is destroyed. When you pull it or try to break it from its foundation of the gospel, and you say, yeah, I get that we're growing, we need to grow more. And so, you know, Google does this. You know, IBM, back in, when it's really growing, it did this. I read this book by Lee Iacocca at our church, we should do this. Right? And so, we're not just talking about, again, a physical building or numbers or things like that. It is bringing in things that don't align with the gospel. Now, of course, there are certain gray areas or secular things that we can use in the church to help us. Non-Christians use chairs. We sit on chairs. We don't sit on the floor, right? Uh, I'm not sure if, sure, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I'm not sure if, sure, the company that makes some of the best sound equipment, if they're run by Christians or not, but we use their equipment, okay? There's a lot of wickedness and evil spread through the internet, and here you're worshiping through the internet. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about infiltrating and getting the minds of the people in this kind of sin and where now they're fighting. And remember, if, you, if you've been around, you might remember a few weeks ago where we talked about this was normal in, back in that day, right? In the Roman Empire, you needed to fight to see who was better than who, whose religion was better than who, and even, you know, members of parliament and which, which emperor was better than that emperor and all those types of things. And so, infiltrated the church, And this is corrupting, spoiling the church. And for the destruction levied by God, again, we know this speaks of an unbeliever because only unbelievers face destruction or wrath. Now, clearly this is a warning. And there are many such warnings in the Scriptures for those who would profane or destroy the temple of God. And again, this shows our significance to God. And because of this significance, there is security. He is not promising that this would never happen. It happened in the early church, in the lifetime of the Apostle Paul. But there is security in that God will take care of the evildoers. Security in knowing that should there be defilement in our church or any church, God will be the avenger. And it's not that we as a church don't take steps to protect the temple. This is what encouragement and confrontation is, the process of church discipline, one of the many tools we have that God has given us to keep the temple holy and pure. But we don't 
exact vengeance on people. We don't try to destroy them. Ultimately, that is in God's hands. And this makes sense because as much as we love and take ownership of the church, it is ultimately His. It's His. We take comfort in the fact that it is He who dwells within us. It is His. So, it is especially appropriate that in this situation, we rely on God's declaration, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And as much as this is a warning to others, this is a huge encouragement to us. The love, affection, and protection from God. That He cares so much that He doesn't, as in many cases, say, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, share the gospel with them, all things we should do, lovingly and graciously and willingly. But in this scenario, He says, I will destroy them. This is a huge, this is, you know, if you ever did the, my daddy can beat up your daddy, this is this to an exponential degree. Right? To fake, you know, finally, finally got that raise, ah, no more worrying about finances. Right? Finally paid off my mortgage after 30 years, no more worrying about the bank or financial crisis, this is ours. How much more security and stability and joy and comfort leading to worship and praise in knowing that we are God's and He is ours to the degree that He uses the word destroy to those who would on a spiritual level harm us. Well, we have seen the sanctuary, the spirit, the significance and security. Finally, number four, the fourth attribute of the church as the temple of God We possess sanctity. We possess or display sanctity. Look at the end of verse 17. Why does he destroy? For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And you think about all of these wonderful promises and thoughts and descriptions of the temple, and he says, this is who you are. You are holy. The temple of God is holy. Again, Paul tells the local church that they are the temple of God, and as such, we are holy. And when we talk about holiness, there are two kinds. Okay? It might get conv- confusing because these two, I'm using the theological words that we would use if you picked up a theology book. They sound the same. Stick with me. There's positional holiness. So just think of your position, right? Uh, probably not position like pose or something like that, but position on the team, right? I'm the kicker. I'm always going to be the kicker or whatever it may be. I'm first string, always going to be first string, okay? And then there's practical holiness, like what what you do. Let me start with the second. Practical holiness, as it sounds, is practical actions. It It is pursuing, with the help of the Holy Spirit, but by your own volition and effort, Holy living through righteous deeds, through obedience, right? When God says, be holy, do holy things, repent, obey, it means do good, obey God, love Him, serve Him, all those things. Now, practical holiness is ever-changing, right? When you practice sin, 
you are not being holy in this sense. That's practical holiness. Positional holiness is speaking of our position, which will never change before God. Your positional holiness does not change because you are saved. Jesus died for your sins and rose again. You are the elect. Nothing will change your position, your standing, your title in God's eyes. And that's what this means, the positional holiness. We are holy, or sacred is another word, because of Christ. That's the word that Paul is using here. He's not talking about practical holiness, because that that wouldn't make sense, right? He wouldn't say, you are the temple of God, and I'm rebuking you for not acting like the temple of God, but because you're the temple of God, you always act holy. That wouldn't make any sense because this, this very statement is to reinforce his rebuke of the Corinthian sin. He is talking about positional holiness. He says, again, don't you know who you are? This is how God views you. This is how God made you, how he has called you. And so he's saying you are holy. Now, I want to make a very clear distinction regarding holiness and the indwelling of the Spirit. In Solomon's temple, or even the second temple, the sanctuary, or the Holy of Holies, was made holy because of God's presence. It's like the ground uh, surrounding the burning bush. Right? If you're not familiar, you've heard of Moses, there's a time where God spoke to him, through a burning bush. And one of the first things that he says to him, God says to Moses, is take off your sandals, which are dirty, right? They've been profaned by the dirt. Because the ground that you are standing on is holy. It wasn't that God scoured the land and found some holy land And that's why he chose that place to speak to Moses. No. The ground was holy because God was there. His presence made it holy. The ground was just ground before God came. In the same way, in Solomon's temple, there was nothing inherently special that made the sanctuary holy so that God could go there. Of course, there was, you know, we know that there were specifications and that he explained what it would be. There were certain things in there, but that didn't just automatically invite God to be there. No. What made the Holy of Holies holy was God's presence. And you see the pattern in where I'm going with this. God doesn't indwell the church because it is holy on its own. It is holy because God indwells it. That's very important. Without God's presence in our church, you would just be a bunch of unfortunate saps hanging around, watching the same boring guy talk your heads off week after week every Sunday at 11. But it's different because you are holy because the Holy Spirit indwells this church. And it's not this, uh, you know, kind of this 
fairy tale, you know, we kind of have this weird, uh, sometimes secular view of this, like, no, it's that place. It's that building. Yeah, of course you had internet problems because we're not at Burlingame High where the Holy Spirit is. You see this all over the world and you feel sorry for them. You ever been to the Vatican? You ever been to Rome? You ever been to Israel? People dragging pieces of clothing, relics, to rub on the graves of dead men, former popes, who, by the way, don't even know that people are doing that. Bringing urns and ashes and things like that to to holy sites in Israel. It's not there. It's not holy. If it's a local church, it's holy, you see. But there's, there's nothing special about that grave. It's not doing anything. Rubbing that on the grave of Pope John Paul does nothing more than if you rubbed it on the tiles of your bathroom floor. Except it cost you a couple thousand dollars to get there. It's us, the church. Right? And, and I don't know, maybe if a sci-fi movie helps you picture it right, because we're all spread out all over the Bay Area, even all over the world right now because of live stream. Right? He's here, and then there's beams of light going. I don't know. I mean, that's not how it works. But he is in our church. Right? He is not physical, and so he doesn't need to be where the most of us are. Right? He's, he's in our church. He indwells our church. Right? He's in Dennis's living room right now. Right? He's in Paul's, wherever Paul is right now. Right, watching on his phone in his car somewhere. Right? We are a holy people. And in any, in, in any given place, including one as wicked as Corinth, God makes his home in the heart of his people, the church. And when you connect the wrathful destruction promised in the beginning of the verse with the holiness of God's people, the severity of judgment makes sense. It's justified. By virtue of the fact that we are redeemed, we are by nature, redeemed nature, set apart. We are holy. So it only makes sense that God would destroy anyone who threatens the practical holiness that should emanate from the position of holiness. Did I lose you there? They're not acting holy. And he's threatening anyone who made them not act holy by bringing in worldly wisdom and putting in their minds the idea of these factions. And that's where the judgment is. Anyone who would come into the church or rise up from within it, that would make us live practically unlike what we are positionally. We can talk later, Gina. Think about this, right? He's talking about destruction. This is serious stuff. This isn't, you know, when people move a church in the wrong direction, this isn't a a manager just stealing you from one team that really needs you and put you on another project. Everyone's like, oh, that manager, right? Or divided interests, like how how do I balance school and family? Thankfully for collegians, it's easy now because they're all taking classes from their parents' homes. But we're, we're talking about corrupting a people, corrupting their minds and corrupting the actions of a blood-bought people. 
Of course he wants to destroy. Of course he takes that seriously. And as scary as that is for the corrupter, this, for you believers, should give you a skip in your step as you understand what you mean to God because of what he has done for you. And again, you're holy positionally because of what he has done for you. Because of what he has given you. You are set apart as a people for him. And so, church, you are the temple of God. And his spirit dwells in us. So act like it. We are a sanctuary. We have the spirit. We carry significance and thus security. And we possess sanctity, holiness set apart. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you would see fit to love us to the point that you would choose us, you would send your Son to die for us, that you would love us, and now you indwell us and even threaten the destruction of those who would harm us. I pray that that which you threaten to destroy would also be that which drives us, and that is the gospel, not our finances or practical things, but our holiness, our spirituality, our focus on who you are and what you have called us to be. Father, thank you that we are a holy people. So, Father, may you help us to be a holy people. In Jesus' name, amen.